Our limitations, self-doubt, and limiting beliefs about ourselves. Why do we give them so much power? I'm Simon Caruso, and this is the Limitless Man Podcast, speaking to those who doubted their own doubts and overcame limitations to pursue their very own limitless potential. Hey guys, welcome to another episode. Today is, I just want to frame this for you. This is the most significant episode for me to date because the gentleman I've got on today, if it wasn't for him, I don't believe this podcast would have got up and running and I would have been continuing to do this the way I'm doing it. So it's pretty significant for me. He's a husband and a father of three. He's had significant hardship and adversity throughout his 20s and in his early 30s, including an almost suicide attempt following a messy divorce. He went on a journey of his own discovery to change his own results, become a better man, and make a difference in the world by exploring his own potential. Over the next 17 years, he gained qualifications in counseling, psychology, and is also trained in neuroscience. In 2018, after already spending over a decade counseling and helping men, he wrote his first book, Forging Excalibur, a personal development book for men. But since then, he's created a worldwide movement, and we'll get to this, of men on their hero's journey to actualize their own limitless potential and become the man they know they have the ability to become. Michael Laurier, it's an honor, and thanks for making the time to come on the podcast. Oh, you're so welcome, Simon. Thank you for having me on, and I'm quite humbled, actually, by what you said at the very beginning. So that's really um, heartwarming, actually. So thank you. Nah, you're welcome, mate. And like I said, it's you do come across certain people, you know, from time to time. And you started off as someone who was a coach, a mentor, and now fortunately, fortunately enough to become mates, which is awesome. So, and just learning from you and watching your journey as well. And it's it's just great to see, I guess, where you're going with your brand and how you've actually come to actualize this part of your life. So that's where I want to start. I just want you to paint a picture, just give give people an opportunity to get to know who Michael was and how he's become to actualize the person that he is today. Yeah, cool. Okay. So who Michael was. So Michael, uh, back then, I'm talking about probably 20 years ago now. So I'm 48. I'm, I will say 20 to 30 years ago, Michael, I was very different to who I am now. So I'll, I'll you know, I'll say that I was egotistical, arrogant, um, very prideful as well. Um, and the total opposite of who I am now, you know, I didn't really have any standards for myself. I had no idea what I truly valued. Um, I had no real purpose or any, any sense of meaning to life at all. And I was just kind of going one step, one step at a time towards this, let's just say it's like, it was like an undefined version of success. And so I did what most men do. You know, I start out in my early years and I want to make heaps of money, create some sense of significance and success in the world. And I did that by um, acquiring things, you know. So I I worked my way through the so-called corporate structure and I ended up in a very good job wearing Hugo Boss suits, driving a 7 Series BMW, doing all the things, the lunches, the dinners, the significance, the so-called success. And fundamentally, I found out very quickly, well, not very quickly, it took me a decade to figure out that actually that wasn't, that's not what life is about. That doesn't provide meaning. It doesn't give us a sense of fulfillment and sustain us in a way that is, that has some longevity to it, you know? Mm. So a lot of that led up to my, some of that, I would say some of that. And also I would say also just total disconnect over time led to a divorce with my then wife and by then we had a 10-year-old son and a 6-year-old daughter by that point. And so then we got divorced. And Simon, what happened after that was just a mess for the next seven years or so. It was just a mess. So neither of us really um, conducted ourselves in a manner that was conducive with putting children first. Yeah, you know, okay. Yeah, anything like that. So whilst I t- I've talked about this a lot in the past around that divorce and not being able to see my children and descending into the absolute depths of hell within myself over the next few years, um, 
I always add that element in of personal responsibility around the fact that I co-created a lot of that experience with her. And I also created a lot of my own shitty results as well, um, leading to that, which you mentioned, an almost sort of suicide attempt as well. So, you know, that's at the time I was in this place of blame and fault and nothing was my fault and and she was to blame for everything in the world was at fault and everything, right? Everything and everyone else was at fault and not me back then. Mm. How old were you at the time, Michael? When was um, when was this? So that was between the ages of, uh, say, 30 and 33, 34, when I was really that in that in the midst of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then was it from there that you started to really have a think about what you wanted to do with your life and get these qualifications? You said you moved into counselling. You got qualifications in psychology as well. Did that all stem from or was that the catalyst to you moving towards that sort of life? So I'll I'll provide a little bit more framework around this, right? So the catalyst was um, there was a period of time it was about two to three months at the end, like directly, directly prior to me almost taking my own life, right? And I'd lost my job. I declared bankruptcy. I was evicted from my property. I had no money, you know, no job. Um, I, was, I, I, I was addicted to sleeping tablets. I was on antidepressants. I was drinking a lot as well. Mm. And there was this one Sunday morning where I was, um, basically I'd just been drunk for almost two weeks prior, you know, with little pockets of sobriety, but mainly drunk. And I, and I woke up this one Sunday morning and I thought, this is pointless. What am I even doing? Mm. You know? um, I don't know how I've descended to this horrible place and I don't know how I've created this shit and everyone else is to blame and fuck this and I'm out of here. Mm. You know? And I was, I was about to take my own life and I was about to just down, you know, a whole bottle of um, antidepressants and sleeping tablets along with wine and it would have killed me. Yeah. And, yeah. And I, and I, in that moment when I was about to do that, there was a text message from my son who I hadn't seen for a few months. And in the text message, it said, dad, we love you and we miss you and we can't wait to see you again. Right. And in that moment, Simon, I'll tell you, that was the catalyst. That moment was the catalyst. I really looked at myself from a different perspective and it's mm. like, at some point in the future, I'm going to see my children again. And I wonder, is this who I want them to experience? And so from that, that was the catalyst for me to then put my life back together gradually, slowly, but surely over time. And yes, over time, that included me going and getting my counseling qualifications, psychological qualifications as well, mm. and, and eventually getting to where I am now. So, Cool. What was the first step if, when you were in that mess? Like, do you remember vividly like after the message and then that realization that it's not all about you and you've got other responsibilities in your life as well you know eg children do you remember like one of the first steps you took to sort of get you out of that big hole yeah absolutely so it's funny because this is way before jordan peterson was ever an internationally public recognized figure and so the first thing i did was i got up off my bed i stumbled into the bathroom and i looked just looked at myself in the mirror before washing my face. And I remember thinking, who the hell, what, what has happened? How did you get to this point? Right. Cause you, you know what it's like, you've been drunk before. Right. And many times. Wake, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you wake up the next morning. Good fun at the times. And you just look like shit. So imagine yeah. two weeks of that, right. Two weeks of that, no water, just alcohol. So I was dehydrated. I was drawn. I was looking really old for my age and you know, you look at yourself in the mirror and I remember thinking like, who have you become and how did you get this low? How did things get to this point? And I, and then I remember looking up from the mirror and like looking into my bedroom and my bedroom was just a shambles. It was just shit everywhere. Right. Cause I'd been drinking, eating pizza, junk food. It was just a disgusting mess. I hadn't showered for two weeks. There was shit everywhere. And so the first thing that I did, ironically enough, is I cleaned my room. Right which is Jordan what Jordan Peterson, Peterson talks yeah. about now. So, yeah. yeah, right. So the first thing was is I tidied my room. I, I made my bed. Well, I mm-hmm. took off all the sheets and washed them, but cleaned up my room and then I went to the rest of the house, tidied up that, washed the dishes, did all the things that I needed to do 
just put my house in order, literally put my house in order. And then as I did that over the next couple of days and I stopped drinking and I threw out whatever alcohol I had and I stopped taking antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication and the sleeping tablets as well, that was a journey over the next two weeks. But over that next two weeks, I eliminated all the things in my life that were just holding me back and causing me pain in some way, you know? Yeah. And I, rec- and I recognized that the alcohol, the tablets, the, the, all the shit that was in my life was just me trying to somehow make it all better and it was making it all worse. Mm. So the first thing was that, and then I went out into the world and I got a job and over the next month I got a job and I managed to negotiate something with my landlord to repay the rent that I'd owed and get up to date within the next three months. So that all happened as well. And it was just this steady, you know, one, one foot in front of the other until I got to a point where my life was reasonably felt reasonably secure and I put myself back together in some way that meant that I could function properly again, you know? Mm. Yeah. And when you got, when you got the job, did you envisage yourself staying in that job for a period of time or was it just a stepping stone to propel you to something else in life? Did you realize then that you were going to create what you've created today? Absolutely not. No. Okay. If you again, I mean, a lot of people say this stuff, right? But if I had have gone back and someone or someone had have said to me then that you know in 2022, Michael, you'd be doing this would be your life and this is what you'd be doing, I wouldn't have believed them because even back then I didn't believe that there was much more beyond what I thought was normal for me, and and those that period of three months, I knew that wasn't normal. That wasn't my normal way of living my normal way of living for me back then, my paradigm was um, I was successful. I was earning a lot of money. I was driving a nice car. People respected me. Maybe it wasn't respect. If I look back on it, it probably wasn't respect. It was just, we better, we better just do what Michael says. Otherwise he'll fire us. <laughs> <laughs> so it was more fear than anything, I think, because I was a very different person back then. And so <laughs> that was my normal. And then slipping into what I did was abnormal. And as I started coming out of that, I started feeling something that felt a little bit more normal. But I would say that that first job was not, for me at that point, it wasn't a stepping stone. It was the, it was the destination. Yeah. Right. It was like, I have to just get a job. If I get a job, then I'll feel secure. That was a destination at that point because I didn't imagine that I could achieve anything more beyond that at that point. Yeah. I want to talk about the book because that was my first interaction with you. I received an ebook from you and it's about the standards of men, which I'll let you talk about. But you also stated that the book in itself was something you did that surpassed, you know, a previously imagined expectation of yourself. So you'd Mm -hmm. accomplished something that you just never thought was possible. Can you talk about the book and that and surpassing that limitation? Yeah, absolutely. So when I first thought I might, I might want to write a book because I thought I'm at the point in my life where I've helped lots of men by then, thousands of men, um, tens of thousands of hours in, uh, so, well, thousands of hours, I should say, in sort of coaching and counselling and therapy of men. And I thought I'm sure that there's stuff that I can share with the world, enough to fill up a book, right, enough to fill up a book. And I think I've come far enough that whatever it is that I might write, somebody might read one day and maybe get something out of it, right? So this is where I, this is where my thoughts were at that point. And then I did the same thing that most people do when they face something that's unknown. You then go through all this stuff in your own head. It's like, who, who am I? Who the hell am I? Who do I think I am to write a book, right? And if I did write a book, I've never written a book before, so I wouldn't even know where to start or how to do it. And there's that. And then it's like, even if I did write a book, who the hell am I to publish a book? And then who the hell is going to read it? You know? Mm. And these are all the things that went through my mind when I first thought of writing a book was March or April, maybe it was May, 2018. By the time I actually started writing, Simon, it was February, 2019. That's when I started writing. So it was yeah. almost 12 months after thinking mm. maybe I should write a book. Maybe I could write a book, you know? Yeah. And um, 
And then it was about putting myself in the place. This is self-image stuff I'm about to talk about, right? So putting myself, um, future pacing myself and imagining the version of myself that has already written the book and how would he think and what would he do and, and, uh, and all the rest of it, right? And then it was one morning, um, like 2 a.m. in the morning, I woke up in the middle of the night and I had this vision of a sword and fire and all this sort of stuff. And this was February or March in 2019. And it all just kind of came to me. And I went downstairs to my office and I literally was there from 2 a.m. until about 7 a.m. that morning. And I, and I put this whole structure up and I, of, of the chapters and I went through and I Googled, you know, I, I just came up with this idea of a sword. Like there was this sword and I didn't have any name or anything mm. around. It was just a sword and fire. And I thought, wow, that's cool. And I had a look at, I researched then during those few hours, how you forge a sword. And then um, when I looked at, when I learned how you forge a sword, I thought, wow, that's almost like my journey where you, you know, this useless, you know, hunk of metal mm. starts as a useless hunk of metal and it goes into the fire and it gets somehow over that, over the next stages, it's like hammered and shaped and folded and, and then put aside to cool. And it's like, this is adversity. It goes into the fire. That's adversity. And then it comes out and it gets hammered and shaped and folded. This is about all the things that we learn. And when you go through that process over and over again, like this piece of metal does on its journey towards becoming a sword, it becomes stronger. The metal becomes stronger. It becomes more resilient I know you love that word resilience, right? Yeah. It becomes more resilient and eventually it becomes something useful, which is a sword. And I then likened that analogy to the journey that a man goes on in life. Mm. And I thought I can weave this into the story of, um, you know, what men experience and how they can overcome adversity and all this sort of stuff. And then I started thinking about this will go into the next question. You talked about this, the standards that I read yeah. about, you know, um, then I started thinking about that era and knights and knights of the round table and King Arthur and Excalibur. And I thought, wow, there's such a rich tapestry of um, legend and mythology that I can weave in here. Also with the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell's work around the hero's journey. And I thought, wow, I think I can create something pretty cool that men will really connect with. And so I did that and I thought about, you know, men on their journey towards becoming knights. And, I, and and you see these movies, right? And the standards that they hold themselves to of loyalty and honor and valor and virtue and all these things. And I thought over the years, what I've noticed is a degradation of these values in men and, and masculinity in general. And so I thought, what are some of the standards that I've held myself to over the last few years mm. since I've actualized this version of myself that I might be able to write about and connect with what these men had to embody on their journey towards becoming knights as well. And so that's when I came up with the seven standards of men. Yeah. And at, at the time I read the book, there was seven. Is there now eight? Have you introduced the eight? There's, there's seven, right? So there's eight, yes. So okay. the, this, the initial seven are strength and courage and responsibility, purpose, self-actualization, um, compassion, and integrity. They're, yep. the, they're the first seven. And... Um, and then one of the guys in my Facebook group, he did a live video and he said, love the seven standards of men. They're all really, really cool. And I want to talk about discipline, right? Because he said, I think discipline can really wrap all of this up. And I sat with that for a period of time and I thought, you know what? That is actually really amazing because without discipline, without the consistency of these actions over time, that creates discipline, right? And without discipline, how are you going to continue to embody these seven standards of men consistently over time mm. and create habits around these things as well? So then I wrote an addendum to the book called The Eighth Standard Discipline, and that's become the eighth standard. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I love that. I love the term discipline. For me, that resonates so highly. And Jocko Willink, he's got a beautiful phrase. He says that discipline equals freedom, if anyone hasn't heard that before. And I, believe that with all my heart because it's doing the things you don't necessarily feel like doing them when you have to do them that's going to count and so it develops consistency you know over time and so I think that 
I was I was glad to hear that because I did the seven standards was awesome. It was it just gave me an insight because no one's actually framed to me before a standard that I should put on myself or a series of standards the way that that book did. So and I thought with the eight standard being disciplined, it just wrapped everything up nicely. But um, yeah, and I, mean, and I will say just in regards to discipline, it's it's one of those things that and I write about this in that addendum, right? So discipline gets a really bad rap because it's really um, our unconscious association with the word discipline is around hard work and punishment, you know, yeah. because when we think about our childhood, when we were disciplined, we were punished and we did something wrong. Right. And so, and then exactly. And us Italians, right. We got the physical oh, yeah. discipline. Yeah. And yes. so, and so there's that part of it. And the other part of it is when you, you know, when you're trying to achieve something, when you're working towards something, you have to be disciplined in your approach. Mm. And that's usually associated with hard work and nobody likes hard work. <laughs> so when you, when, you, when you bring this into somebody, into a space and you go, let's talk about discipline, all of a sudden people go, oh, I don't like that word. I might get in trouble or it might be too much work, you know, and people, people naturally are repelled by the word discipline. But mm. Jocko's right. And I touched on this in my book as well around the fact that discipline creates freedom, consistency of action and consistency of thinking over time, that's discipline. And when you can do that, you create so much space and freedom in your mind and in your life that you can then start to live a life where you have a lot more choice as a result of being disciplined for a consistent period of time. Yeah, no, I love it. A lot of people listening to this, they're people that are, or they feel trapped in a lifestyle, whether that be a relationship, a career, you know, they want to do something different. They want to move from where they are to where they prefer to be. And I think half the battle is trying to work out where they want to go with their life. So knowing what they don't want and something that's not actually working for them versus then getting some clarity and moving towards an area of life or a lifestyle, an image that they can actually live out for the rest of their days. And so you spoke about entrepreneurship as just an amazing teacher for you. And obviously you made a transition. So you would have been going through this at some point as well, where you had a job and you wanted to create something bigger. You wanted a bigger vision for yourself. You wanted to step into something great. There's not much greater uh, vision that I've heard than wanting to serve a billion people in a global movement. It's a lot of people. It's a scary number. From my perspective, yeah, it really it's is. a scary number. You hey, know? hey, Simon, it's scary from my perspective too. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, but even to think that's what you're going to do, just explain. Can you just frame how you went from where you were, you, you got a job to then creating this, this movement of forging Excalibur where yep. you want to serve so many people around the world? Yep. Yep. I'm happy to do that. Um, the first thing I want to say is that. This has been a stepped process. I didn't go from getting a full-time job after almost taking my own life to then going, oh, I want to serve a billion men around the world, right? That didn't just happen overnight. Mm. So there's this stepped process and the stepped process, you know, fundamentally underneath this step process are increased levels of self-belief and the ability to conceptualize your our limitless potential, okay? So I know, you know, you talk about, discipline and limit being limitless a lot. And I, and I really resonate with it because it's a very difficult concept for people to conceptualize, especially when, in the, when, when they're in the depths of struggle or they have no real evidence for having achieved something in their lives that they previously thought was impossible. So not many people have that frame of reference. So sometimes you've got to have that voluntary struggle that you put yourself through that voluntary thing that you choose it's beyond the scope of what you believe your potential is and then getting some evidence for the fact that you can surpass what you previously believed was possible for yourself. And then once you do that once, then it becomes easier the second time, maybe not easier to surpass the thing, but at least easier to believe that you could. Mm. Right. And so the job was a first step. And then as I started to create more of a sense of safety, stability, and security within myself and my own life, just feelings of that. I then became inspired to want to go and help other men to do the same thing. And so the next step after that was like, it wasn't straight into my own business. It was, I should study some modality, some thing so that I get a certificate 
or a qualification so that then I feel more, well, qualified to help other people, right? Because, again, the limited thinking is who am I I to think I can help someone else without this piece of paper, right? So I went and got my counselling diploma. That took took 12 months. Can I just say, can I ask you that just on that? Did you believe you already had exactly what you needed was that just a validation thing that piece of paper or did you learn something from that which you've then taken that you didn't have before um i would say that that more so the counseling diploma was a journey of my more of a journey of my own self-discovery it was more of a a self-exploration thing because by the time i got to the end of that i realized that the piece of paper that i'd achieved um was it was fine it was good i could put it up in a frame on the wall right in my in my house or my office eventually but it didn't really give me anything that i didn't already have mm, okay. i just i just needed i probably probably what it was good for is to create a framework around what i already had and give me some kind of a logical sequence in which to be able to present that to someone else and help them yeah that's probably what it did for me but but now I look back and I'm like, at that stage in my life, that was a good thing for me to have because it gave me a, a feeling of, okay, cool. Somebody else has said that I, that, I'm, that I can help others. Yeah. Right? Somebody else has validated me in that. Um, yeah. So back then that was good. Yeah. Um, and so, okay, where was I? Okay, cool. So, so then when I got that, I thought, cool, I can go help other people now. And so I started my own counseling practice and, but I was still working full time, right? I hadn't yet developed the courage to go out on my own. So I was working full time, started my counseling practice. It took me another two years to get to a point where I'm like, okay, cool. I've got enough clients. It's reasonably sustainable. Um, it's pre- reasonably predictable and I can earn a full-time income out of this. But even then I didn't lose, I didn't um, leave my full-time job. Even then I didn't, Right. I thought I'll just I'll just transition, right? Safely, safely, I'll just safely transition. You can relate to this. Yes, yeah. Yep. And and even and back then, and that was still I was still in fear. It was like I didn't have that level of self-belief that I could do it on my own. You know? And so the next step was transitioning. It was like, all right, I'm gonna work full time and then do my appointments in the evening and on the weekends. And then I found that I was getting tired of doing that. It was actually quite exhausting. And it was at that point that I was faced with a decision and the decision was, do I keep on doing this? Cause my counseling practice was growing. Right. And I would, and I was getting to the point where I just couldn't maintain the clientele and a full-time job. And so I spoke with my a friend of mine. He was like a mentor at the time. And he said, well, Michael, what are you going to do? You've got a choice. You can either continue to play at this level or you can play at a higher level. It's up to you. And, um, and so I made the choice and I'm, and I handed in my resignation. I shit my pants mm. and I handed in my resignation, um, at my job. And then over the next month, I was just in fear Yeah. of what if this doesn't work? What if I've made a stupid decision? What if this is just the worst thing that I've ever done? Right. And over the next month or two or three after that, I was provided evidence that I'd made the right decision. And so that gave me an extra layer of um, self-belief, if you, if you might, a, de- a depth of self-belief that I hadn't had before, Yeah. which then, so then what happened is I started going, oh, maybe I want to just learn more about, I want to go to the next step and learn more about psychology. And I started doing my own research on the internet and came across people like Carl Jung. And Carl Jung just blew my mind back then. And sometimes he still does when I read things you know, and I'm like, wow, I really want to learn about psychology. And so I went out and I studied psychology and I eventually got my postgraduate degree in psychology as well. Um, And that happened over the next four years whilst I was running my counselling practice, which then became a practice in psychology. Um, And that was uh, eight or nine years ago when I did that. And then gradually what I did is as, as, as a result of doing that, study and learning more about Carl Jung. I learned more about then Joseph Campbell and got introduced to Joseph Campbell and all of his work around the hero's journey, which is so powerful. And when you create a fusion of psychology and this journey of self-growth that I'd been on 
and then Carl Jung's work and Joseph Campbell's work, it starts to create this really rich tapestry of knowledge um, combined with experience and wisdom from, you know, the ages into what I've created in Forging Excalibur. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't know anyone else that's actually got a psychology degree or psychology background and is now actually a coach and has forged, pardon the pun, yeah, forged the path down down this road. Always, always feel free to use the pun. Yeah, that, well, I mean, but where I'm going with this is that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of conflicting views as to you know coaching the coaching versus psychology. You know, now you've been in both, so obviously you still see merit in psychology. You've moved across to this side of the fence or the coaching side of the fence, but how do you see the two, and can they work together or are they mutually exclusive? Mm-hmm. It's a good question because I don't entirely discount psychology, but I don't have the level of positive regard and respect for it that I used to. And and here's the reason why, right? Because and I'll, I I think I can go back to counsel when I was when I was just a counselor, and I was counselling. What I realised when I was counselling is that the counselling sessions would help men feel better temporarily, but then when they would come back the next week they would have gone back to where they were the week before, just a different problem, a different challenge, a different struggle, a different something. But what I recognized over the first year to two years of being a counsellor is that we were scratching below the surface, but nothing much beyond that. It was just talk therapy really. And it was just Mm -hmm. about talking about feelings and unpacking things and talking about strategies on how to, you know, get better results perhaps, but everything was temporary. Nothing was, nobody was actually getting permanent solutions. And so this is one of the motivating factors after I learned about Carl Jung and the depth of his work um, into the unconscious mind that I thought, I'll, I'll study psychology. Maybe we'll get a bit deeper with that, you know? So I studied psychology and, you know, psychology is so indoctrinated and modern psychology is not like what it used to be with Carl Jung. It's just not the, it's just not the same. You know, modern psychology teaches you about mental illness. It teaches you about, you know, um, personality disorders. It talks about not that you can not that you can diagnose as a psychologist, but it teaches you that frame. And it's a real textbook approach. It's like almost like a one size fits all. And if it's not in the textbook as a mental illness, then um, there's no frame of reference with which a psychologist can then help someone. You know. And not everybody fits into the same bloody mold. And so Mm. when you're a psychologist, you're taught that everyone's going to fit into one of these handful of categories. Okay. And it's like, and then I started to learn that that's just not the case. And so what coaching has helped with, and I don't often like that term coaching, but there's no, there's nothing else really that I can think of that, you know, encompasses what happens here and what I do, but Mm. But it's really this fusion of um, counseling, psychology, neuroscience, um, archetypal work, shadow, Carl Jung. Like it's all in amongst, it's all, I can't point to any one thing and say, this is what I do. It's like this this um, conglomeration or this uh, coagulation, if you like, if we use alchemy terms, coagulation of all these different modalities yeah and ways of thinking and ancient wisdom um, really, really into one thing that I've created, which has ended up being forging Excalibur. Mm. I want to ask you about masculinity as well, because specifically what you target, well, you target men specifically, not to say that women don't resonate with your message, because I've seen a lot of women comment on your post before and talk about you in a positive light. So that's all good. But we hear this term in society today. We're in 2022. It's toxic masculinity, you know, and it, it's like a slur on men, really. Like it's a, I think it's a term that's used to degrade what men naturally have. You know, men, we have masculinity. We are masculine, right? That's not to say that women don't have masculine traits, but I want you to talk about this because you're more qualified than myself to, to get into these details. But, why have we come 
why society deemed the term toxic masculinity and what does it mean to be a masculine man? Okay. That's a bloody big question, Simon, but I'll, I'll do my best to break this up in something that's kind of bite-sized. So um, now number one, I just want to, I just want to frame masculinity for a second and all this stuff about masculine and feminine energies that we hear out there in the, especially on social media. So my perspective on that is that, you know, men's men, men are masculine. Okay. And we don't necessarily need to, or, or, or it's not necessarily helpful to bring in this whole thing around having to integrate your feminine in some way. Okay. Because um, the primary energy, and I don't even like talking about energies, but it's part of the discussion. It's like men are built wired for action, implementation, results. We're very results driven. Mm. We're very logic and rational and that's all good. But we can also have other aspects to us, which are empathetic, compassionate, loving, nurturing, et cetera, et cetera. They don't have to be feminine traits. They can be natural expressions of the, a masculine man. Like, yeah. I don't know why we have to label them feminine. That, like, that's the first thing, right? Because that, what, that's, what the inference is there is that, is that men are not capable of these things. Mm. They've, got to, they've got to embody feminine traits in order to be compassionate and nurturing when that's not the case at all. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, which, you know, you asked about toxic masculinity. So this is part of, in, and, and I'll just say in my opinion, but it's pretty obvious that, it, that this is the case, that it's just the, 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 the far left agendas to feminize men, emasculate men, and create a world where men are weak mm-hmm. and submissive. Because at the end of the day, the world is, is, is descended into tyranny, right? And when you've got a tyrannical, um, when you've got tyrannical governments, tyrannical agendas that are running the world, the very first thing you do is you break down men and you break down masculinity and you stop the people from revolting. And so this is what's happened. And this has been a thing since the 1970s when feminism started and not to say that women shouldn't have rights because of course they should just as many rights as men. And, and, and that's not the issue. The issue is that feminism has gone from women's rights all the way over to let's just fucking hate men and emasculate men and castrate them wherever possible. (laughs) Okay. That's where it's gone. And, and you see it in mainstream media, you see it in social media, you see it in um, everything. It's just like even the whole fucking gender thing at the moment, it's, it's just, it's, it's this agenda to emasculate men and create gender neutrality in our society Mm. because fundamentally what they're trying to do is create very weak men so that we can't stand up to what's going on in the world. And so what better way to make to demonize men than to cause that then to call bad behavior toxic masculinity, right? Because as soon as you hear the word masculinity, the unconscious goes to the unconscious association is, oh, we must be talking about men, right? So then you put toxic in front of it. And what does that tell everybody? That men are poisonous. We're toxic. We're dangerous. You've got to be careful of men. We're something to be feared, right? And then as soon as then a man steps into confidence, self-assuredness, um, he leads himself or he leads his family. There's an element of self-leadership and and really good quality, healthy power there. It's like, oh, we've got to be careful of him. There's mm. something going on there. It's toxic. Yeah. It's dangerous. And we're going to try and break him down in some way. It goes all the way back to um, the Roman times, you know, when the Roman Empire tried to raise taxes and they raised taxes to the point where, uh, you know, families couldn't even buy food anymore. And guess what happened? The men said, fuck you. We're not paying these taxes anymore. You can go and get fucked. And all the men revolted, right? And the, and the government, the Roman government at the time said, well, we, we can't handle this. We can't fight off all of these strong, powerful, empowered men who are trying to provide for their families. So what did they do? They built the fucking Colosseum and gave people bread and circuses, they called it. So entertainment and food to shut them the hell up so they would keep on paying taxes and just be happy and be submissive. And this is where it all started. And it hasn't stopped. 
Yeah, that's interesting. It's an interesting take. And you're right in the sense that when you do, when I think of, when I hear the term toxic masculinity, it is making you know, direct reference to, to men and that connotation that we're, we are dangerous, that we're bad. But, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a natural trait um, being masculine. And you spoke about, you know, having compassion and, and empathy as well. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Because you spoke about that like in your standards as well. Empathy, I believe, is one of them. Was one of the standards. Compassion so, is compassion is so right. compassion. Sorry, it was compassion. Empathy, yeah, that's right. Empathy is closely aligned yeah. with compassion. Anyway, yep. Yep. Can you just talk about that as well? Because, like I said, there's a bit of a misconception there that um, you know men are hard, and you know part of being a man isn't to be compassionate. But that's obviously one of your standards. So why is that important, Michael? Because if we think about our role, right, our traditional role as men. Our traditional role as men is to provide and protect. Okay, there's yep. they're two of the two of the major traditional roles that men generally have um, have shouldered. Let's just say as a, as their natural responsibilities. Yeah, and so I wonder how can you and and how can you sacrifice yourself every single day to provide and protect for your family if you didn't have compassion for their well being, right? Mm. So this is one of the fundamental things. That's the first thing. So compassion needs to be a very, um, uh, it needs to be built into our DNA because if we don't care about the people that we say that we love, then why would we struggle and strive towards providing and protecting for them? Okay, why would we do that? Mm. It makes no sense. So compassion is fundamentally a masculine trait as well. And so the other part of this as well is that when we go out there in the world, and we're faced with adversity. So think about the, the the knights that would have gone out there in the world, right? They didn't just rape and pillage all the time, and they didn't just um, destroy villages, right? There was an, an an element of discernment. One of the one of the really powerful traits of being a really good quality masculine man, and I'll use the analogy of a sword and Excalibur, is to know when to sh- sheathe your sword and know when to yield, wield your sword, right? And when we wield, then we're ready to go into battle. Mm. But often, once we've gone into battle, that means that we've lost the fight. We've lost the inner yeah. fight, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and the way that we discern whether it's fighting or compassion for somebody is discernment. So this is a yeah. really, you know, compassion and discernment are also very closely aligned with empathy because we need to discern whether something is a real threat or not, or is this person really suffering in front of us and they're angry and frustrated because they're actually suffering. And so if we can have compassion for another person while still being very powerfully in our masculine, right. Then I think that's incredibly, um, that's incredibly strong and powerful in itself to be able to go, actually, no, I don't need to cut your fucking head off. I can just be loving and compassionate and have some empathy for you. Yeah. All right. Cool. No, no worries. I want to touch on entrepreneurship specifically. So you spoke of it as being one of the greatest teachers for you and getting some of the best growth, if not the biggest growth from it in your entire life. So people listening to this may be considering starting something on the side, you know, doing something entrepreneurial, what can they expect, Michael? Like, and how's this journey for you impacted you and given you so many insights? Okay, so without being all doom and gloom about it, right? The yeah. journey, the journey of entrepreneurship, <laughs> the journey of entrepreneurship is um, is uh, chaotic, and it's and it's non-linear, and I promise you, you will leave lose a lot of sleep. You it will create a lot of anxiety for you, and. Um, and at every step of the way, it will force you to self-actualize. And what I mean by self-actualize is continue, like what we talked about before, continuing to um, gain more and more evidence for the your ability to be able to achieve things that you currently feel are impossible. Because every single step of the way feels impossible, right? Um, I remember when you wanted when you wanted to start your podcast. Mm. I still remember that. Yeah. And that felt impossible for you, but here you are. Yeah. Right? And I'm not sure how many episodes you are in, but I know that you're quite a few. Yeah, around um, 20 in. So it's not, awesome. not, 
you know, we're not up to 100 or anything yet. But I think I just want to touch on what you just said. What happens is when you continually put yourself in that situation, you end up stretching yourself. So Mm -hmm. you develop a new tolerance to actually what you can take. And that's only possible by constantly putting yourself in those uncomfortable situations, putting yourself in a situation where you haven't got the answers and it's something you have to navigate your way through as you go. So I'm assuming that's the discomfort you're talking about because I'm going through at my own level at the moment, a very similar experience. Yeah. Having transitioned from a job. Yeah. And it just continues, Simon. You know, you you even asked me about the mission of 1 billion men earlier. And, um, and that's even been an ongoing journey of evolution because it started off at a million. I thought if I can, if I can help a million men, that's pretty good. And yes, it is pretty good. Right. There's nothing, there's nothing to cast aspersions at. That's a, that's it. That's impact. Um, and then I started teaching people about their limitless potential. And in fact, one of my students at the time, um, for the, when the first forging Excalibur retreat, I picked him up from the airport and we're on the way to the actual retreat venue. And he said to me, you know, how you talk about limitless potential all the time. And I said, yeah. And he said, do you think your forging Excalibur mission of impacting 1 million men is limitless? <laughs> and of course it's not, is it? Because yeah, many okay. more men out yeah. there, right. So it's a constant evolution. It's a yeah. constant growth. It's a constant step into the discomfort and the so-called impossible. But what I will say on that as well is it's not all doom and gloom. Every time you get to that next stage, you become a different version of yourself because you've achieved something you previously believed was impossible. And then that motivates you to do something to do the next thing, which you currently believe is impossible, but yeah. you have more and more evidence along the way to know that you have it within you to achieve it. Yeah. That's where I was going with it because, you know, there was a time where I felt sick behind this microphone and interviewing a guest. And I actually put off reaching out to you for some time, as you know, because I was associated with you more as a, as a client or a student initially and so it was a big step for me to actually reach out and say, yep, yeah, all right, let's do it. Let's pull the trigger and get it done because, and even before that, to be honest, like doing my first one, I remember just what was going through my head, but it just gets, it's gotten easier and easier over time to do that. And now there's other things that I'm trying to do, which I haven't done before. And I'm going through the same emotions again. And it's like, well, I can't do this shit. You know, how am I going to do it? And so you're right. It doesn't stop. I don't think it ever stops. I think the challenge is to find that next thing, you know, and just keep pushing yourself and keep stretching and keep growing. To me, that's what life's about. That's what I've learned. I just turned 40 years old and don't get me wrong. I love nice things. I think it's nothing wrong with nice cars, a nice house. I do want that. But more importantly, for me, it's about the growth. It's about stepping up and seeing what I'm capable of doing, you know, and I think a lot of guys feel that way but they just haven't taken that next step. And I think they feel that this fear, this thing that's holding them back is exclusive to them when it's not like it's, we all go through it. So you've just spoken about, uh, I can relate to what you're saying. And I don't think I've studied anyone or been associated with anyone that's achieved anything great that hasn't gone through it. So it's, it's very normal to feel like, fuck, like, what am I going to do? I'm stuck. I've got all this responsibility. I can't, I'm not capable of doing anything else, which really then comes back to your identity. And I love the way you speak about identity and it's learning to change that. It's learning to act like the person you want to become, you know, get clear on some of these traits, you know, and why not start moving in that direction? But yeah, I I love the way you framed it. And yeah, obviously this has inspired that work that I went through at the time, you know, with yourself and being involved in your group was in fact, the catalyst for me to, you know, even the name of the podcast, the limitless man podcast obviously is, you know, it derives from some of those learnings and those experiences. So I love hearing that Simon. It, what was it's that? Really, I said, I love hearing that. Yeah. Thank you. And not, no, no, the, you're welcome. That, that, that's the, the truth. So yeah. Yep. And, and I, and it's not that I love hearing that from a place of ego. It's like, it's like that's the whole purpose of forging Excalibur, yeah. you know, to to inspire men like you to transition out of what they believe is possible into, um, sorry, what they believe is impossible 
to make that possible for themselves. And so um, I'd love to add a layer to this discussion, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Yep. Depends how much time have you got, Michael? <laughs> I've, got, I've, got, I've got plenty of time. It's okay. okay. Yep. Okay, go. So, so um, the layer that I want to add to this is this. So a lot of people, not just men, but a lot of people start out on the journey of entrepreneurship, right? And And I would say 95% of the time, it's a shiny object thing, right? It's like, oh, I want that. I want that significance. I want that success. I want that money. I want that brand. I want that whatever it is, right? Whatever it is that they want, it's normally a shiny object thing. And that's human nature. However, what usually happens is that when it's a shiny object um, and they hit the first roadblock, it's like, oh, shit, now what? And then they might get through that and they hit the second roadblock and they go, oh, God, this is getting hard, you know, and they might get through that. They did hit the third roadblock and they'll just give up. So um, all of us have been through that. We've started something and we haven't followed through. And I'll tell you why we haven't followed through because we don't have a well-defined purpose behind what we're doing, right? There's not something that is so anchoring to us that goes beyond the self. And when we think about some of the psychological models like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for instance, right? The very top level of that is self-transcendence. It goes above self-actualization to self-transcendence. And most people, um, when they start their entrepreneurial journey, it's either from survival or wanting a feeling of belonging. And that feeling of belonging comes from a need significance and it's that's that's very self-serving and this is why it doesn't last right because likes and loves and comments and all this stuff only goes for so long as if you if you pin everything if you peg all of your self-worth to that and your success in business and all the rest of it to that it's not going to last very bloody long i'll tell you that yeah but when you start to step into self-actualizing yourself and as you self-actualize you self-transcend which basically means that you're serving a purpose higher than you and yourself and your sense of identity that has sustainability, longevity, then you will create something in the world that has a positive impact. And I learned that from a very early point in my entrepreneurial journey to take the focus off me, put it onto the mission. And now everything that I do is in service of not me, but the mission of positively impacting the lives of 1 billion men. And so then what you do is every decision that you make in your business, every decision that you make in your life becomes about being in service of the mission and not being self-serving in any way. Now, when you get to that point, what generally happens is that sometimes you've got to make decisions that are very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. And the people around you will start to feel challenged by that because they feel like something's been, that you've done the wrong thing by them or they're not being served in some way. And, but really what you're doing is you're being in service of the mission. And so it's a big, hard pill to swallow, but that's how you create longevity. That's how you sustain yourself through the struggle. And that's how you create resilience over time because when you are self-serving, when you're serving significance, success, achievement, goals, when you're serving all of those things, results, when you're serving all of those things, um, it's not sustainable. When you're serving a mission that's beyond you, that creates mission, vision, purpose, and contribution in the world. And that becomes this other entity that's created that may not exist anywhere else except for conceptually, but you're serving the thing and it becomes its own entity over time. Mm. And so for me, that's what forging Excalibur has become. It started out something very different and now it's become this mission, this vision yeah. that I'm that I'm continually serving and actualizing all the time. Did it take you a while to come to that vision and mission? Like you said, it started off as something very different to what it is today. That just evolved organically over time. Was there yep. an experience maybe that you went through that perhaps led to that growth? Uh, it's it's an evolution over time, Simon, but there's always a catalyst to, I guess, jumping to that next level. There's always a – you, you kind of approach it, but then there's this um, 
there's this invisible barrier that you hit and you and and it need you need a catalyst then to get beyond the invisible barrier and step into that place of self transcendence or you know or the serving of the self in some way mm. and so for me the catalyst was um not all that long ago not all that long ago right the catalyst was um forging excalibur isn't working in its current form right if we keep on going like this we might serve 10 20 people men at a time right and it'll just continue along this path that's we're never going to reach the mission of 1 billion mm. if we only have 10 men in this group and 10 men in that group and 20 guys over here like we're never going to get there so for me it became looking uh, you know zooming out on forging excalibur and the structure that we had created and go is this going to work is this serving the mission or is it just sustaining things short term mm. the answer was it's just sustaining things short term okay it's not actually serving the mission and so i had to then step into this other part of myself where it's like wow so if this is not in service of the mission what do i do do i just close forging excalibur down altogether or do i need to stop the way that we're doing things and figuring out a new way of doing things that does serve the mission and help us get to that objective of 1 billion um, in a time frame that feels a bit more realistic. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, when you've got a mission of 1 billion men, 20 here and 20 there, and maybe even 50 there or even a thousand somewhere else, it's not enough, Simon. Mm. It's not enough. So I had to make some massive changes in forging Excalibur just recently, which upset a few people. And, and, um, but at the end of the day, like, it's about serving the mission, and this is what's always got to be the most important thing. If you have this overarching mission for um, for your vision, then you make choices that most people wouldn't make, but yeah. you will also make a bigger impact that most people would ever make as well. Yeah. Nah, cool. Michael, I've got, I've got another one to jump onto shortly, but I want to finish off with the definition of limitless or what how you define limitless. And what you said was it's – really being the architect of your own experience or all your experiences. So how does someone begin to actualize that? How does someone begin to actually realize and start to think about what they want to do architecturally and then bringing that into fruition for them? Yeah, it's a good question. And, um, and the initial stages of that are creating what I call cells of recognition for the experience of achieving something that you previously thought was impossible. We've, we've talked about this a fair bit scattered through this episode, right? Mm. But, but that's the key. Like that's the key. Um, think about, you don't have to think about the overall um, massive mission or purpose for your life for now, but that might be a concept, but there's going to be an obvious first step an obvious obvious first step that feels uncomfortable that doesn't put everything at stake for now, right? Because it's got to be an evolution. You've got to build those cells of recognition over time. And so what I would say to people is have your vision, the overarching vision that you think you want to create, yep. and then, and then um, have a blueprint for the next steps. Like what's the next step? what's the next step that's not going to put my livelihood and my family at stake just for now to give myself just that little bit of evidence that I can do the thing that feels uncomfortable, like right now I can do it. And then you build up that resilience to go, okay, cool. What's the next step? And you take the next step and you do the next. And all of a sudden you're 12 months down the track and you're a very different version of yourself than you were 12 months before doing things that you thought were way out of the scope of possibility. And that's now the, the new normal for yeah. you, you know, yeah. and that's how you start. That's how you do the thing. Because again, you know, if I'd have, if someone had have said to me even five years ago that I'd be doing what I'm doing now, I would have gone, sounds great. That sounds really great, but I can't see that Yeah. right now. I'd, I'd love it, but I can't see it. Yeah. And that's the exciting part of it is you can't see it. You just got to take the next step and it's just about taking the next step and then the next step and the next step. And that's, well, that's certainly how I'm going about it anyway. And that's how I understand it is for everyone. 
pretty much, you know. So and, and you think about what an architect does, right? An architect, an architect creates a, a plan and it's like it draws the plans out and and uh with with whatever brief he has or she has in mind, and then there's a there's a continual adjustment of that until you get to the right plan, the right design that you want to build the house or create the building or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so this is the same thing as the journey of entrepreneurship. You can have the blueprint, you can create a plan, but I'll tell you what, there are so many adjustments along the way. It's yes. like when you it's like when you think about, you know, a plane and I wrote about this in the addendum to discipline as well, right? It's like a, a pilot makes all these millions of course corrections mm-hmm. all the time um in order to get to his or her destination. Yeah. And it's the same with entrepreneurship. Yeah, no, nah, couldn't agree more. So how do people reach out to you, man? What's the best way? Is it just through Facebook or are there other yeah, ways that I'm not any, aware of? Any yeah. social media platform, just search Forging Excalibur. Okay. And you'll find Forging Excalibur and you'll come across me as well. Yeah, awesome. No worries. Thanks a lot, man. I really, I love this. This is awesome. And no doubt we're going to do it again. So I'd love to, Simon. Thanks, man. Yeah, no worries at all. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you so much for listening, guys. If you got value from this, please give us a like and a subscribe and also share this with someone who you think may benefit having listened to it as well. I wish you all the very best in chasing what is your own version of your limitless potential.